edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life as times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again, finally back in Arlington, Texas. I had a uh, a week I'll call Hell Week last week. It was a great week, but uh, it really took a lot out of me, and I even spent yesterday uh, wrapping things up. Uh, obviously, I was out, if you read the blog. Uh, finishing uh, uh, a project with Valery Asanov on ballistic striking and Russian combat martial arts. And um, spent Friday and Monday getting thrown around quite a bit, but I brought in actors to take uh, the brunt of the abuse. But I'm still a little bit sore, but it was all in good fun and education. So I am back, and uh, I'll be looking forward to talking about some of the things I learned from Val later this week. Today, though, I'm going to do a listener feedback show because I had so many great questions come in while I was gone. I've got a backlog now. I've probably got... I bet you I've got 40 great questions lined up in queue. And uh, remember, if you want your question read on a show like this, what you need to do is you need to send an email to uh, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the or the, depending on how you pronounce it, jack at the or the survivalpodcast.com. And put in the subject line question for Jack. That's the way you'll make sure that it gets uh, you know, uh, vetted as a question versus uh, a regular email. Also, make sure your questions are brief, concise, and to the point. If you want to give me a book of background information, that is fine. I probably won't read it all, but I may scan it and look for the scan it and look for the information I need. But get the question out up front. If you cannot ask me your question in one to two sentences, I probably will not put it on the show. Not because I don't care, but because it just takes too long to figure out what your question is if you don't do that for me. And it also, also uh, sorry guys, uh, there. I guess a little of my time is off. What I've also realized is if I don't make you do that, a lot of times people aren't really even sure what their own question is. So try to get your question out in one or two sentences, and then give me the background information. Before we go into the show, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Listen to the housekeeping today because I have a special running on MSB. I'll tell you that about that when we talk about MSB, but we're going to call it a tax day special. All right, first of all, though, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is the Berkey Guy. The Berkey Guy is a reseller of Berkey Light water filtration systems, one of the best water filtration systems available anywhere today. Absolutely outstanding product. And remember, he is running a contest in our forum. Make sure you check today's show notes. I will include a link to the Berkey Guy's contest on the forum. You can win a lot of great things, everything from a... Go Berkey uh, kit to a travel Berkey to a Berkey light. Uh, so he's giving away a lot of stuff, and uh, your odds of winning are based on how many people play. Uh, there's a lot of people playing, but probably not as many as you might think. So you have really good odds of maybe winning one of these systems. So check out the thread, register for that. Next up today is sponsor of the day is ShelfReliance.com. I really love the Shelf Reliance product. I put a great video together. It's available on YouTube. You can check out and look at uh, their Harvest 72 product. It's absolutely an outstanding way to store uh, your canned goods. And I'm going to be doing some videos on YouTube, so make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, where I'm going to be using small uh, food-grade paint cans to store dehydrated food. And I have found that some of the, uh, I think it's the pint-sized cans, I can't be sure of that, actually fit very well into the standard can sizes on the Harvest 72, which uh, really makes a cool way to store dehydrated food, not just your standard canned food from the store. So anyway, check out Shelf Reliance. Remember, if you're in the MSB, you get 7% off all their products at all times. All right, uh, next up is, you know, make sure you're connecting with us. We have a lot of ways to do that. Uh, number one and foremost is the forum. Get on our forum. Get involved with our forum. Uh, it's amazing what an amazing community that, that has really turned into. Uh, next up is uh, things like YouTube. Uh, my YouTube channel is pretty active. I don't put as many videos on there as I'd like to. Summer's here now, though, and it's beautiful outside most days. It's not blowing wind. It's hard on even a remote microphone, and it's just got good lighting. So I'll be doing a lot of the videos that I've planned and a lot more videos coming up. Make sure you connect with me on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm not the biggest Twitter head. I'm not the biggest uh, Facebook uh, person, but I do make sure that all my show updates go there. So if you, that's your primary way of getting updates, it's a great way to do that. I'm going to try to be better about tweeting more, as you guys call it, about things that are not just directly related to the show. So 
You guys can maybe help me with this. Uh, I don't know how you guys that are really big into Twitter stick with uh, your following. If you have any suggestions for that, give me a comment today. Last but not least, the Member Support Brigade. Uh, remember, if you join the Member Support Brigade, you help support this show, and you get a lot of exclusive benefits that are available only to members. Over 20 videos by me. Discounts from, it's almost 20 vendors now. Really good discounts. Like I mentioned, Shelf Reliance at 7%. Uh, free prepared members, uh, preferred membership from uh, Western Botanicals. Uh, that would cost you $50 in by itself, so it pays for your entire membership in and of, in of itself. But what it comes out to is you're supporting this show at $0.20 cents an episode. So if you listen every day and you think it's worth two dimes, consider joining the MSB. But remember, I promised you a special. This is not a contest. This is indeed a special. It's a tax day special. It will run until the 15th. Here's the thing. It's for listeners only. It's not for passers via the blog. It's for dedicated listeners to get to the new show. So if you were too late, you were too late if you're hearing this now. Here is the code, though. The code is 0042. Again, 0042. Use that when you sign up for one-year membership of the Member Support Brigade, and you'll get the first year of the MSB for $35. That code will last through the 15th. Yes, tax day. I think you're paying too much taxes. I really believe that. My first question is going to be about that today. So, hey, I'll cut you a break where I can. Uh, this is for new sign-ups only, obviously, unless you have a membership expire and want to replace it. You can do that, cancel your old one or what have you. But, again, 0042, it only works for the annual memberships. $35 off your first year. It goes back to 50 after that. Of course, you can cancel any time. Uh, if you want to pay by check or mail, as long as your envelope is postmarked by the 15th, you can pay me by check or, or money order. Uh, and remember, I also take uh, ACOS Silver. Can't do a special on that. So uh, if you want to pay by silver, uh, you can pay with either one ounce of ACOS Silver or two ounces of any other silver. And that wraps up the housekeeping, and let's get on to the main subject today. I want to start out with a question. I can't tell you the name of the person that asked me it, but I got this when I was on vacation. And I was sure I put it into my queue, my question queue, uh, for this show because I wanted to answer it, especially with tax day coming up. But I can't find it now. So if you sent me an email while I was away and it was something that required a response, please send me another email because obviously I can lose at least one. I can lose more than one. Uh, but here was the question, and I'm going to do the best I can to paraphrase this since I don't have it in front of me. But the guy said I'm a little bit confused. Because what you said, you've said many times, is that tax is theft, that we shouldn't have to pay income tax. Uh, but if we had no tax at all, zero taxes, how would the government provide us the things that we actually need? You know, let's stick to the things that we really need, like roads. Got to have roads. The purest libertarian would say roads can be run by private industry. And, and roads can be toll roads, and if we weren't taxed, we wouldn't mind paying the tolls, and we could choose which roads to use and which roads not to use, and everything would be privatized. And you know what? For me, not so much. I am a libertarian big time, but I'm not that purist. Uh, when I say purist, I mean 100% dedicated to the, you know, the, the, the ethos of the, uh, the libertarian cause. I think that, for instance, roads is a good example. I think roads is a place for government to be responsible. Government is supposed to make sure that we have the ability to function as a society and pursue our dreams and our goals. Not to guarantee our dreams and goals will be fulfilled, not to give them to us, but to clear the way for us. That is its purpose, and to protect our individual sovereign rights so that someone else doesn't interfere with them. And to make sure that everybody has as equal footing as possible of opportunity, not success. All right. So, to build roads, do we need an income tax? Absolutely not. We have a gas tax to provide that. In fact, much of the motor fuels tax, both at the state and federal level, is currently being Robin Hooded out, not used for roads in the first place, to pay for other people's pet programs. Well, what about school? Well, I think the school system is another failure. I've given you my solution in the past to how we could fix it and make it better. But I do support the concept of a societal uh, providing of education. So having some level of taxation to provide for our school system, I'm fine with it. I think people are overtaxed for it right now. I think we overpay, and the school system's under-deliver. Again, I've given the solution to that in the past, but where do tax dollars come to pay for our schools? Property taxes. So does that come from income tax? No. And then there's all these other little things that are out there that we can argue whether or not we really need them, but the vast majority of them actually come from things like sales taxes at the state level. So, or income tax at the state level, which I'm also opposed to. 
So do we need an income tax on individual income? Absolutely not. In fact, according to Dr. Ron Paul, also a congressman from the state of Texas, who I believe uh, is, is quite competent with mathematics, if we were to cut government spending to where it was in 2001, we could eliminate the need for income tax on all personal income. So when I say that taxes should be eliminated, the first tax that I'm thinking of is your tax on your income. And I'm not talking about replacing with, with, with anything else. People out there, you think you want a national sales tax at 33% in replacement of the income tax? You're out of your mind. The fair tax is not fair. It has more potential for abuse than anything that the government's ever done before. And right now, folks, your government is thinking about adding something called a VAT tax or a value-added tax, which equates to a national sales tax, except it will actually apply in situations many times where sales tax does not, because it will be at every point that value is added. So let's say, here's a perfect example. If I run a shop and my shop provides computer services, and I have a customer that wants my service, and he also wants to be able to diagnose problems on his own. And I'm a reseller for a manufacturer, and I buy the manufacturer's piece of equipment, but I buy it to resell it to my customer. And I go in, and I talk to the customer, and I see his problems, and I demonstrate this piece of diagnostic equipment to him, and I solve his immediate problem, and I sell him the piece of diagnostic equipment at the end. If I'm in a state that has sales tax, I did not pay sales tax when I purchased the equipment because I purchased it for resale with a reseller identification. When I then turn around and sell it to my customer, which is the end user in the final delivery of the product, that's subject to state sales tax if my state has sales tax, which most states do. Under the value-added tax that Obama and his minions are kicking around right now, folks, when I purchase the product... Since I'm adding value to it as a reseller, so I'm a value-added reseller, as they say in the industry, by providing support and service along with the product, I would pay sales tax. When I then sell the product on to the end user, he would pay sales tax again. So this value-added tax is not just a national sales tax. It is a tax on every time value is added to an item, and therefore it is subject to double taxation. And it's absolutely insane that they're talking about adding this. Uh, let's go into why they're talking about this. We're going to stick a little bit with tax again. We've got two days away from tax day, and I've got an interesting question or actually an article submitted by somebody that has to do with taxation, something I'm sure you've heard, but I'm going to give you my unique take on this. And that is what's supposed to be a startling statistic. We're all supposed to be shocked by this, but uh, the only thing that's been happening with this statistic is it's been growing, and it's, it's always been, in, in any time in recent history, higher than 35%. But the statistic that's come out in a lot of news and media stories around this time is that about 40% of Americans will pay no federal income taxes at all for 2009. Either their incomes were too low or they qualified for enough credits, deductions, and exemptions to eliminate their liability. That's according to projections by the Tax Policy Center, a Washington research organization. Ooh. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to go too deep into the actual fundamentals behind this story, because I'm sure you've heard them on the news. I'm sure you've heard them on talk radio. I'm sure you've heard two sides to the story, uh, if you've listened to more than one news source. But here's basically the two sides that you get. One is, how sad is it? that 53% of us have to fit the bill for all these people that don't pay any tax. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are angry right now, but a lot of the people that are angry right now are among the 47%. They don't even realize it. Because when they do their taxes, it doesn't even jive to them, hey, I got back more than I paid in, or I got back the same as I paid in. And then there's this, I'd love to know what the statistic is. What percentage of, and I don't know this, and if somebody can find this for me, I'd really be interested to know, what percentage of Americans end up paying effectively less than 5% on income tax? You know that group between the 47 and the 53? Somewhere there's got to be a big group of people in the middle there that only a very small portion of their income is actually taxable that aren't counted among the 47%. So that's another statistic I'd like to know. And I'd like to know how many people that are out there raving mad about having to pay income tax last year and paid eight or $900 in federal income tax. Uh, where I'll tell you what I paid, it was over $20,000 in income taxes last year. So, and that's just income. That's straight up federal income tax. 
so I, I know that they say, well, okay, well, if I'm in your camp, Jack, if I'm the guy that paid twenty grand in income tax or paid fifteen grand in income tax or something like that, I feel mad about these these forty seven percent, folks. Here's what no one's going to tell you. Here's when people say, "Well, Jack, when you cover this, it's like listening to Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh, and I can get that anywhere." Um, no, um, this is bullshit. This is class warfare. That's what this is. Why are you angry at the person that paid no income tax? Why should you be upset that somebody else paid no income tax? Do you feel overtaxed? Would you feel better if that person had to pay the same percentage of income tax? Let's say most people, even if they're in a 30% tax bracket or higher, by the time you get done with deductions and if you have a higher income where you make that kind of money and you're smart, you file uh, the long form and you do all your deductions, you come out 18 to 22%. Would you feel better if we taxed all those people at 18% so that the government had more money? So that they could run more programs to take away more of your influence? If you're one of these people that are angry because you paid some taxes, but effectively you ended up paying five, six, seven percent, would you feel better if those people that paid zero had to pay at least five or six percent and you had to pay uh, 22 percent the way I did? I'm just saying. I'm asking you to think about that. The whole reason this is done, folks, we don't need an income tax in the first place. Income tax is not what funds all these monstrosities. There are so many taxes that you pay every day. So what should be done about this? Again, from what I was saying in the beginning, we don't need a federal income tax. All we need to do is cut spending back prior to 2001 levels. Does anyone really think that we weren't spending way too much money in 1999? Okay, so there's one side, one angle of the story. Another angle I want to give you a story. Why did it jump to 47 percent? Is it because Obama went and made good on all his promises to cut taxes for the middle class? A little bit. I'll be fair to the ass clown. He did put out some things that made um, put in some tax incentives and tax cuts, especially for people under the fifty thousand dollar income level. But that's not why the percentage jumped so much. What happened? How many people were unemployed in 2009? Let's put it to you another way. Let me soften the number for you. If 10% of America, at least, because that's the official number, were unemployed in 2009, then what effective number are we left with that really had jobs and paid no taxes? 37%. Let's say another 5% of Americans are dirt poor and on government welfare and entitlement programs and things like that. Okay, now we're down to 32% paying no income tax. All right. Now let's say that 20% of working families are single moms earning under $40,000 a year with more than one child. How many people are out there really working in a two-family income system earning a reasonable wage that are actually paying no income tax? Very, very few. When we start whittling away that startling 47% number, we start to realize that the people that are paying no income tax actually, and I hate to say it, shouldn't really be paying any income tax. I hate to say it because of the way some people will take it. They'll say, well, Jack, well, why shouldn't they pay if I have to pay? Because you shouldn't have to pay either. So what would my solution be if we're going to, if you said, Jack, you can't take away the income tax, but you can do anything you want to with it, uh, I would do something like a flat tax rate, 10%, 5%, something like that. No deductions, no anything other than for business deductions. Obviously, a big business only pays a profit. So an individual self-employed person would have business expenses. That would be the only thing deductible. I would stop propping things up with the real estate deductions on home mortgage insurance. And I would tell the government, okay, there you go. You get 5% of the American people's income. You want more money. Make the economy better. Quit screwing things up. But obviously, my preference would be to get rid of it. So those are two combined together. Let's get off the tax thing for a while. But I just wanted to, I wanted to spin this statistic a little bit differently for you. Again, let's think about it. 47% of Americans pay no income tax. Let's take away all the people that are living on $1,300 a month worth of Social Security. Okay, they're getting their own money back out of the Social Security system. Again, let's take away all the single mothers out there earning $40,000, $50,000 or less a year with two or three children. And a deadbeat father that doesn't chip in money or he's gone or maybe even beyond his own capacity to take care of them anymore. Let's take away the 10% of America that was unemployed. And let's realize that 10% unemployed, yeah, it's not really 10%. It could be 15, it could be 20. 
What's really left? The poorest of the poor. But, here's the thing. All of those people vote. And if we get the number, and this is why I'm interested, what's the number of people that pay 5 or 6%, 4%, 3%, 7%? Very little. What's that middle number? And how many of those people can now be utilized? And the people on the other side can be utilized? And how many people that are paying a lot of money can be utilized through class warfare? Think about it before you get too upset about the person and realize that the people that are pulling the strings are not the people that aren't paying the taxes or are paying the taxes on either side of the equation. It's the people that are supposed to be working for us up in Washington you should actually be upset with. Let's go on to another question. Here's a good one. I, I got a lot of political stuff to, to cover today, guys, and it's because it's what you guys sent in. But here's one that has nothing to do with it. It comes from Stephen. And, uh, by the way, that last one, uh, I, I've already moved that out of queue, so I'm not sure. But this one comes from Stephen. Stephen says, do you have any techniques for dealing with recoil in large caliber rifles? See, that's a quick question. And then here's the background. I recently purchased my first bolt gun, a Marlin XL7 and 306. Before now, my only other centerfire rifle has been a Marlin 336 and 3030, mild recoil in comparison. The XL7s are known for being light at just under 6.5 pounds, which is great for carrying in the field, but tough for the recoil. I find myself bracing for the recoil instead of relaxing to take an accurate shot. It's having negative effects on my shooting. The couple of times I force myself to relax and forget about the recoil, the scope comes back and whacks my safety glasses. Not any fun either. Any help would be greatly appreciated. I'm going to give you a couple different things here, Stephen, and this is for everybody that deals with heavier recoil rifles. First of all, if you get up and shoot that rifle uh, in an offhand standing position, in a one-knee position, in any typical position that you'll be shooting it in the field, other than just like a bench in a box blind, which I have some negative connotation feels about, um, you'll notice that the recoil will immediately be reduced, your perceived recoil. Because when you're sitting at a bench and you're leaning into that rifle, and the way that your body's positioned when you're seated like that, the full weight of your body is against the gun, and there's very little there to absorb the shock. Whereas if you're standing up, you've got your whole body acting as a shock absorber. So one of the things would be when you're shooting your 3006, start getting into field positions and make it more accurate for more accurate for field practice anyway, and you'll you'll mitigate your recoil concerns almost immediately. Uh, the next thing that I'm going to suggest that you do is consider starting to reload and for practice. Load your, take your loads and bring them down a notch. Go ahead and load them down into somewhere between that 3030 and full power 3006 load. Load lighter grain bullets that maybe you're using for hunting, something around 150 grains. Uh, and that's going to do a lot to mitigate the recoil as well. Now, the thing is, you still need the bench, right? You need to be able to shoot off the bench for, for things like checking your zero, zeroing your weapon, determining its, its potential accuracy. So you want to be able to shoot nice, tight groups. And you, the reason you want those nice, tight groups on the bench is just so you can show them to your friend and go, look how, how accurate my rifle is, because I really don't care what your groups at the bench are from that standpoint of ego. I care what your ability to take meat from the field to the freezer is, because that's what's really important, or in a defensive situation, to hit center mass. So... What do we do, though, about the bench, and why do we need it? We need it, one, for to make sure that we have the weapon sighted in properly. Because if we have the weapon sighted in inaccurately, and we do a very good job of shooting offhand, or shooting from one knee, or shooting from a blind, or whatever, then if we miss, it's not our fault, it's the weapon's fault. But in the end, the weapon is inanimate, so it's our fault for not getting zero properly in the first place. The next reason we need a good, nice group, and it, your tight group might be two inches, and my tight group might be three quarters of an inch, but we need to be able to shoot the weapon to our own ability from the bench because it gives us confidence in the weapon. And that is so important. If you go out with a rifle you don't have confidence in, you're not going to perform well in the field. If you have confidence in the weapon, then you're going to know that it's up to you to do your job and you're going to perform better. So I'll give you a couple uh, techniques for shooting off the bench with less recoil uh, problems. One is instead of hunkering down way leaned in over the bench, 
pull your chair or whatever you're seated on a little bit underneath the bench and let yourself already be sort of in a lean back position. You still have to have good head position. You still have to have good arm position. I'm talking about your torso being leaning slightly, to, not way back like you're in a recliner, but break the center axis so that your spine is actually a little bit back. What that will do is instead of pushing against your body weight, you're kind of already allowing yourself to come back from the recoil, and the felt recoil will be mitigated. Um, that's probably the best way to shoot from the bench and begin to, to learn to absorb recoil. Another way is to go ahead and start hand-loading, like I said, and load some stuff down into the 30-30 range and start loading some rounds. Load five rounds, one load up. Another five rounds, another load up. Another five rounds, another load up. And slowly work your way up that chain so that you go out there and one day maybe you start with uh, five loads under maximum, fire five rounds, the next time you fire five rounds, go four loads under maximum, and then quit for the day. Shoot something else. Go to different positions. But the next time you go out, have another set of loads, four loads under maximum, and then go to three loads under maximum. Shoot those. Two is enough for the day. As long as you can get back to the range frequently, this will work. And slowly bring yourself up. And what will happen is, as you find discomfort... As the recoil increases, you'll realize, okay, well, if I turn my body a little bit, now it's a little bit more comfortable. This is just like if you wanted to learn how to jump off the roof of your house and land without hurting yourself, the smart thing to do would be get a one-foot bench and jump off from a foot. You don't get hurt, you go to two feet. Then you go to three, you go to four. Maybe you go to five and something hurts, but you don't break anything. Now you keep jumping off of five feet until you figure out how to do it without hurting yourself, and you perfect the technique there. You move to six. Do you have discomfort? Do you have pain? If you do, stop at six. Work at six. Go back to five. Have you forgot things that you already had learned? And if you slowly work your way up, it's reasonable that most people could actually get to a point where you could jump off a 10-foot roof, hit the ground, land, and not hurt yourself at all. But you have to do everything right. But if you started out by, well, it's possible, so I'm going to jump off a 10-foot roof, you're going to end up in the hospital with a broken knee or a broken leg. You might even injure yourself in a way that, that's quite severe. Same thing with rifles. Slowly work your way up. Now, there's not a lot of rifles with recoil signatures in between the 3030 and the 30.06, so that's why I recommend handloading. Simple short solution. This is a good one because when you're in the field hunting, I don't care if you're in a, in a bench rest position. I don't care where you are. When you're shooting at live game, you will not notice recoil. I can put a 460 Weatherby in your hands, and if you're shooting at an elephant in Africa, you will never even feel the recoil. You won't notice it. Even if it even if he comes back and, and bloodies your lip or something, you won't notice it till later. So don't worry about recoil in the field because it's not going to affect you. Now, if you're shooting a shotgun all day long, it does. It wears you out. But one or two shots at a big game, not going to matter. So what we really need to be able to do then is to be able to shoot that weapon on the bench, put those tight groups, and verify the accuracy and get confidence in the gun. Simple things would be go out and get what's called a lead sled or any of the uh, the bench rest uh uh, benches for shooting from that have a little bit of weight added to them so that when you fire the bench, uh, the rest takes the recoil versus the shooter. Expensive, but practical, functional. Now I've got a great uh, rifle holding system for doing gunsmithing work. So, expensive way. Cheap way. Go down to your local shooting supply store, buy yourself a 25-pound bag of shotgun shot. Something like 7s, 8s, 9s, doesn't six, seven and a half, eight, nine, doesn't matter. Anything like that, but a bag of shot. Take that bag of shot, set it on the bench back where your shoulder is, pull the rifle up against the bag of shot, okay? Take your shot, good head position, everything exactly the way. You've now added effectively 25 pounds of weight that that rifle has to move before it hits your arm. So now you go from a 6.5 pound rifle, you have a scope on it, let's say it's a 7.5 pound rifle, plus 25 more pounds, you have a 37.5 pound 30.06. Recoil? effectively like that of a 22 long rifle. So there you go. Bunch of different ways to skin that cat. But above all, keep shooting and keep teaching yourself to slowly accept that recoil more and more. Hand loading is a great way to do that. Let's take another question. Staying out of the politics for a little while. Let's, uh, this is not really a question, but this is interesting. And I'd like to know if anybody's tried this and has had success with it. Um, and this is from someone that was uh, in India, I guess. So here, I'll just read the email to you. And this comes from Galen. Galen says, hi, Jack. I was talking to a co-worker for, from India today, telling her of the beans I had cooked for my food storage. She mentioned rice was good to store, and you could coat the rice with castor oil. 
she set about a teaspoon of castor oil on 25 pounds of rice. Then to cook the rice, she first put it in hot water and washed the oil off of it. She said that would work with beans and other foods that kept insects off of it. Um, I don't know how much it's going to improve the storage quality, because white rice, uh, dry beans, those things store really well. But that might really have a very good effect on uh, insect pests. And, for instance, rice, you can get what are called rice weevils in your rice, and they will just kind of ruin your entire storage pile of rice if they get in there. Now, my preference is to use storage containers that keep the weevils from getting in. But I guess, you know, one of the concerns is you might even have a few little rice weevil eggs in your rice when you bought it, and if you don't take some precautions to kill them, maybe they could hatch over long term, and you think it's protected, and you open it up, and your rice is full of weevils. I know people uh, who have purchased rice and got it home in large containers and had weevils in it from the store. So I guess it does happen, and I guess if it could have weevils when you get it home, it could have the potential for weevils when you get it home. In fact, I was just on the Baldy and the Blonde show, and uh, Baldy said he had bought some bulk rice, and it was full of weevils, so it does happen. So I don't know about this. I don't know about using castor oil for this, but I thought I'd pass that on. Anybody that's done it or knows anything more about it, please let me know by email or comment on the blog. Let's take another question. How about something a little encouraging and uplifting? How about something that is actually connected to government, but actually sounds like a good idea. Um, this comes from Mark out of Pittsburgh. And uh, what the, t- the, the, the subject of the email was public land to be used to grow produce. And it's, uh, I'll go ahead and read part of the article, at least some segments of the article to you. And uh, this was uh, published Tuesday, April 6th by Len Bargowski in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Food pantries throughout Allegheny County this summer, which is the county Pittsburgh's in, could have a new source of locally grown produce for their clients. County Executive Dan Onotaro will seek preliminary approval from the county council today to grow fresh vegetables on two acres in Round Hill Park, a county park in Elizabeth Township. Council approval is needed for the use of the county land. Mr. Ontaro uh, announced a new effort to be called Allegheny Farm Corps on Monday. The Allegheny Farm Corps will promote sustainable agriculture and assist the greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank with its efforts to feed the hungry in our region. Mr. Ontaro said in a statement, We also hope to bolster Allegheny County's agricultural sector by raising awareness of the economic and environmental benefits of local food production. County employees would plow the ground, then volunteers would plant and maintain it. Farm Corps would also hold seminars on food production and preservation and offer apprenticeships to people interested in careers in farming. And uh, I'll let you read the rest of the article yourself. Um, Let's talk about this, though. Let's talk about first the good. I think it's awesome. We have this land that the county owns up there that's not being used for really anything right now other than sit there and be looked at. And we're actually having to pay people to maintain it, to do what? Most likely to mow grass and keep it from becoming overrun with weeds. Now, the area is surrounding something that they call an 1,100-acre demonstration farm. So there's already a farm there. So exactly what this two acres looks like, there's no way for me to know. There's no pictures there. But, um, you know, it's, it's a step in the right direction. I also love hearing the word sustainable in there. So I didn't hear the word organic, and I didn't hear the word, you know, uh, all natural. I didn't hear no GMOs. I didn't hear anything like that. But I did hear sustainable. So at least the effort's being made uh, one way or another to make sure that this is done sustainably. Since they're going to bring volunteers in to do the planting, that'll probably happen. It'll probably be done very close to uh, things that are that are sustainable and in you know the organic permaculture natural mindset that that kind of a hybrid modgepodge of those because anybody that cares enough to go out there and do this work uh, at no pay is going to be the type of person of the mindset to do that anyway. So all in all, it sounds like a great project. My only complaint on the surface would be well, only two acres. If you have 1,100 acres of demonstration farm, there's probably plenty of wasted land out there that could be dedicated to this. Now, maybe it's a plan to be grown. So I'm not going to pick on that part, really, because uh, if I'm going to do something, I've said this over and over again, I would do it small, see if it works, and then I'll do more. So if I did 10 acres, it might not have enough volunteers. I might have enough money to fund it. They say right now they need $50,000 to fund this from the county to pay two part-time employees and to buy the seed. So, okay, let's do a small test project, make sure it works, make sure it's viable. So no complaints really there. Just I'd love to see it get bigger. 
Right now, what could I look at here and say I see as potential problems? One, the produce is being grown for local food banks, so that it's going to be given to people as uh, as food that are poor, so they need the food. So what's wrong with that? There doesn't seem to be any connection between getting the food given to you as a donation and being a volunteer at the facility. In other words, if you're going to tell me that you're going to you're going to staff this thing with volunteers who are going to come out there and do all the manual labor to grow the produce, but they're not the people that are actually going to reap the harvest or at least reap a portion of the harvest, I have an issue with that. I think what they should do with these programs is say, "Hey, look, you want food? Come out here and work. Not do all the work, not do the grunt work, and not you can't." You know, come out here and work and not take anything. Some people will just want to volunteer. That's great, but I think to get uh, the proceeds, you should have to put in the input. And I think that's a way to start making people responsible because a lot of these people are sitting at home and they're not working and they're getting fat on McDonald's food. And I wonder how many of these people that will receive this food won't even use it. So I think if we put a connection there now, if we brought in people that were willing to do that. And we made that connection. We gave them first dibs, so to speak, and then all the surplus that wasn't wanted by the people that did the work went to these food banks. I think that would be wonderful. So that would be more of a, a technique of modification. The next problem that I have with this, though, and it's not really a problem. It's just maybe again a suggestion of how it could be improved. Is I didn't hear anything about bushes, trees, vines, and perennials. With vegetables, we're going to have to go in and we're going to have to do this work every single year. Now, does that mean that vegetables shouldn't be a component of this? Absolutely not. But I would like, if I had two acres to work with, I would have an acre of that planted, planted in perennials. I would use heavy yielding annuals in my first year,、uh, and I might even plant an acre and a half in amongst the perennials with the annuals, because obviously the perennials are smaller first year, so we can grow annuals right next to them, and we might even grow annuals next to some of the perennials the second year. By the time the perennials are big enough to get into production, we're stopping to grow some of those annuals. We're reducing it back. We're at a 50-50 ratio. We have a much more sustainable system at that point because many of the perennials are producing excess vegetation, which can be used in compost and emulsion right on the facility. So I would tweak this a little bit more toward the permaculture side. But overall, it's very, very encouraging. It's also interesting. That if you read the entire article, you start to hear things about encouraging people to go into farming, and this is the government encouraging our youth to look at farming as a career. I've been saying it. I've been saying it over and over again. There's an agricultural boom on the horizon. Agricultural land will boom in the future. Any land that's fertile and can produce will build boom in the future. We are heading for a food shortage. No matter what the the, the, the Frankenstein, science, Frankenstein scientists at Monsanto tell us, there will be food shortages. Learn to grow food. It will be one of the most valuable skill sets in the next 50 years. I, I absolutely, you know, a lot of times I say I think this or I think that. I really believe that emphatically, and I go on record with that that. Growing food and the capability to grow food is going to become more and more valuable over the next 50 years. And people would say, "Well, duh, of course it is." No, because it's been in exactly the opposite、uh, slope for the last 200 years. Being a farmer has become less and less important. There's been less people going into agriculture. Agriculture has become a smaller and smaller business, especially when we talk about the individual. Sure, the corporate farms are big, but the small farm has been squeezed almost out. That trend is beginning to reverse, and even here you see government sort of pushing the population that way. Why? Because intrinsically, as human beings, we know that these things、uh, are upon us, and we have to do something about them. So, good, good article. Thanks for that. And、uh, let's take another question. Okay, this next one comes from、uh, somebody. I'll just call Shaf because that's the best I can get out of his email. He doesn't give me a first name, and it says this is an interesting question, and it's something that that I, I really want to talk about today. And it's one of these ones that I got when I was on the road, and I'm like, I really need to talk about this. And I'm not going to do a whole show on it, or even half a show, but I am going to speak to it. And here's here's what he says, Jack. Here are some questions. First, how do you keep contempt for your fellow countrymen from overtaking you? Example: I've been trying to wake people up for at least ten years. I've worked on many political campaigns. Most recently, a state coordinator for Ron Paul's 2008 bid, and several smaller local campaigns. I've knocked on a lot of doors. I've tried to wake my family and friends up. I've successfully, in most cases, alienated myself from most people. Most will not listen, and some of them want to kick my teeth in for mentioning this stuff. It's hard not to hold these people in contempt. 
Have you ever had feelings like this? How do you handle it? How do you handle the hostility? All right, so good question, and here's the first thing that you got to get out of your head, that these people are evil, they're bad, they're wrong, they're stupid, or anything else like that. I do refer to them as sheeple often, and people get very, very upset with me for that. It's no condescending. You call them sheeple. If you didn't call them sheeple, maybe more of them would listen. Well, this guy didn't call them sheeple, and they're not listening to him. I call them sheeple because they're led. And they're, they choose a shepherd, and they follow that shepherd to the exclusion of all others. So the shepherd might be the conservative right wing. The shepherd might be Fox News. The shepherd might be the Obama nation. The shepherd might be uh, the Pelosiites. It, it doesn't matter. Where they choose an affiliation and they follow it. And then they ground their world beliefs in that affiliation. And some of my very best friends who I agree with on a large variety of subjects, then when we get into certain subjects, they drift from it or they start, I can tell it's wearing them out, I just don't go there with them. Why? Because they're grounded their world beliefs in that single idealism. And they, when people have that, it's not that they can never be turned from that and allowed to think clearly and for themselves again, but it can't be done all at once. You knock on someone's door and start rattling your mouth off about Ron Paul. Not that you shouldn't try. I mean, that's part of campaigning. But when that person is clearly close to your ideas, this is what you have to assume. They've heard this man's name on television. You know the angle that people have made about this man. They also have their world beliefs wrapped around the concept that real Republicans can save the country, or real Democrats can save the country, or that CBS News tells the truth, or that Fox News, or whatever. And you're now trying to break that off of them at a time of your choosing versus a time of their choosing. So the conversion process, if you want to call it that, is what I consider a passive process. You let people have information as they're willing to accept it. When they become receptive to information, when one day they're frustrated and they're like, these people are lying to me too, maybe they'll ask for a little bit more. If they don't, they don't. And this is about preparedness or politics. All right? This is about survivalism or economics. It doesn't, this is about any idea or any ideal, or any concept. The next thing is, so you don't develop contempt? Did you always know the truth? Were you born knowing the truth? Did your parents teach you the truth from birth? Probably not. Was there a time when you would have defended a Jimmy Carter to the death, or a George Bush to the death, or a Bill Clinton to the death, or Barack Obama to the death? Did that, was that ever you? Was there a time when you would have defended what we call capitalism in the United States that's not really capitalism to the death? Was there a time when you would have defended pure socialism to the death? And when I say to the death, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. And I don't literally mean to the point of a gun to your head. You know what I mean. That you would have been entrenched and you would have just fought with every tooth and nail to get your point across. And you would have resisted any attempt to change that. Right? If you used to be a person like that, how can you have contempt for people that are like that now? Do you think that this is like a religious conversion? That you can just run out and say, hey, John 3.16, they go, oh, hallelujah. You know? It doesn't work that way. We're complex beings with complex psyches. And a lot of these people, folks, have made major decisions in their life, some that worked out really good and some that worked out really bad, based on these core beliefs, and then you're asking them to turn away from them. Very, very difficult. So what do you do? Well, first of all, understand that if the person that you're talking to has the name American after it, they're your brother. And if you're listening to me right now and you're in Ireland or Australia or uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else in the world where they'll let my voice be heard, then your fellow countrymen, the same thing. They're your brother. They're your brother Panamanian. They're your brother Australian. They're your brother England, uh, Britain, Britain, right? They're your brother Irishman. So first of all, they're your brothers and your sisters. Don't have contempt for them. Number two. Understand that the best way that you can help people to see new ideas isn't by pushing the ideas on them, but to live the example. 
Our entire nation was founded on that principle. We've lost touch with that. We've tried to enforce our views on the rest of the world with political sanctions and economic sanctions and threats and military violence. Where our founders wanted us to spread our ideals throughout the world simply by living as a nation that was based on those ideals. And say our defense is important, but our offense really isn't. We don't need to be going anywhere else. Jefferson said it simply, very, very simply, easy to understand. Commerce with all, alliances with none. We've lost that. Understand that these people you have contempt for are a product of the system. And the system is responsible for their beliefs, not them. When you grow up in something, if I took a person here, the most open-minded person in the world, a person that looks at a person and doesn't see color, gender, race, religion, creed, a person that's completely non-bigoted, if I put that child at the age of one years old into a family of white supremacists, they would grow up a racist because the system they were in shaped that. Now hopefully the innate humanness in them at some point would be given the opportunity. And at some point we must hold people responsible for what they do. But we also have to understand the programming that's done to them. Remember what I started out about. 47% of Americans don't pay taxes. Oh, those cheap, all angry people are about them. And you might even be one of them and not realize that you're angry at them. Or you're somebody that's paying so little that you might as well be in that number. Or you're somebody that's paying a lot. Don't think I don't have sympathy for that. But is it the person that's paying nothing that's really the problem? Or is it the government that created the system that sets that up and it takes you and your brother and puts them at odds in a new financial civil war that they're trying to create? Brother killing brother. Think about it. That's what they've created. Now, the most successful people in the world at revolution have created bloodless passive revolutions. People like Gandhi. Does that mean that I'm, you know, if you punch me in the nose, you're not getting punched back? No. But it does mean that if we want to create a true change, a true revolution in the hearts of our brother and sister Americans, we don't do it through force. The system uses force. The media uses force. They use psychological force. Our answer is action, deed, and outcome. You want to know how to convince somebody that the way you live is a better way to live? Share food with them that you've stored when times get tough. Bring them over to your house for a barbecue. Leave the politics out of the conversation. Feed them from your garden. Discuss the things that they ask you about with them. When you reach a point of disagreement, say, I respect your view, I don't share it, and move on to another topic. Quit trying to change people by force. And be change, and then people will follow. Because success feels good. If you were running up on top of a mountain, and on top of that mountain were just giant rocks of gold, solid gold rocks, each one weighing 50 pounds. You could only carry one or two at a time down the mountain. And you had a good friend you wanted to share the gold with. You're not going to carry the rock down and give it to him, right? You might show him, hey, look at what I got. There's more up there, right? But you're going to haul ass back up there to get what you can while the getting's good. If he doesn't follow you the second time, you might say, hey, dude, it's there's another one. I'm putting it in my vault. Back up, right? And you're just going to prosper. And you're going to be an example of prosperity in that scenario, which is an extreme unrealistic scenario. But when we look at the extreme unrealistic scenario to make everything extreme, then we realize that somewhere in the middle is reality. And it answers those tough questions for us. So if everything was to one extreme, how would you act? Would you try to grab them by a headlock and pull them up the hill with you? Come on, come on! Let's, you're going to get some gold whether you want it or not! Or would you say, hey, dude, if you don't want any gold, fine. I'm going to get some more. Well, what we have is go- better than gold. We have freedom. We have liberty. We have liberty as individuals. We have individual sovereignty. So demonstrate it, but never, ever have contempt for people that have been duped by the system the way that you probably have been duped by the system at one point in your life. Have contempt for the system. Have contempt for the chess master that moves the pieces. Don't blame the rook for being a rook.
put on the board to be that. And as far as the rook knows, as far as the knight knows, as far as the queen knows, they have no they have no place in life but to play the part that they were given when they were placed on the board. Now you know that they can wake up. Not only can they change the piece that they are, they can walk off the board. They don't know that yet. It takes time. Many of you don't even know that yet for yourselves. You're still on that journey. So don't. So when you're 50% through your journey, don't have contempt for somebody that's only 10% through theirs. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, this one disturbs me. Um, and it was something that I, I don't know why we didn't hear a lot about this before the health care bill passed. This is an article from the Canada Free Press. Uh, I've gone in and I've read Section 430 of the uh, health care bill. And I verified that this is, in fact, true. There's nothing in this article that's not true. There's some opinions that start to link Obama to Hitler. Folks, I'm very leery of that shit, and I wish the hell you guys would be, too. I really am. I don't know what the hell is wrong with people, that you have a need to link somebody you dislike to a name that's reviled throughout history as being the most extreme. Does that mean that I think that Obama couldn't end up being as evil as Hitler? Uh, no, because I don't believe that Mother Teresa didn't have the capacity to become a Hitler. That anybody could, under the right circumstances and what have you. But when you sensationalize things, you lose credibility. So please knock this shit off. Otherwise, this is a pretty good article. Uh, let me read part of it to you. Obama will now have his private army. Of course, Section 430, establishing a ready reserve corps, lists in detail the commissioned regular corps, uh, and the Ready Reserve Corps that will be trained up, fired up, lined up, and controlled by Obama himself. Naturally, the purpose of this army is to stand by in case they are needed on short notice for a national emergency or emergency response mission. The health care bill talks specifically about the routine training, appointment by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, and other details of service. The bottom line, after reading the details of this section, is that Obama will now have the private army he always wanted. And he goes on to compare that to Solowinski or Hitler. All right, let's stop right there. Let's not go into the, the, the FEMA camps and Obama. Let's not do anything that has to do with Obama with this. And I'm going to tell you why. Because this is the problem with America today. We worry about things that our government does based on who's president at the time. Let me tell you something. I don't want this private army. I have a real problem with this private army. This disgusts me, and this sickens me, but I would be just as disgusted and just as sickened if this happened under George Bush Jr., George Bush Sr., or Ronald Reagan. I would be just as sickened if this happened under Andrew Jackson, our seventh president. This is a disgrace to our nation to have something like this set up. And I'm not so worried about what will Obama do with his private army, because we may not see any more President Obama two and a half years from now may be the end of this guy. Without some kind of major shenanigans, we've got, what, six and a half years of Obama? If he wins re-election, he can only serve two terms, and people are so confused, he's going to get set up in the way where he can get back into office for 12 years or whatever. It ain't going to happen. And if it did, you're going to see the people of this nation rise up, and you're going to see blood in the streets. All right, That's not going to happen. So, what is my real problem with this? That any president in America would ever have access to what amounts to, to be fair, something quite similar to the Gestapo. An army that can be called up at will to function under the direct command of the president outside of the limitations and regulations and controls of the military. That's, that's dangerous. And do you know why governments create private armies like that? Everybody thinks it's about you and me, the citizens. You know who it's really about? It's about the military. It's because they fear two things of the military. One, that given an order that should not be followed, the military will stay true to its code of honors and not follow the orders. In other words, if the military were ordered to go in and lock down a city in a situation where it's not warranted, that the military, the general, would say, you know what, Mr. President, we're not doing that. Right? And the other reason that governments set up private armies is because they feel the military, fear the military itself. They fear that the military will take action to prevent them from doing things that they're not supposed to. In other words, I want you to understand this. This is very real. If there was ever actually a gun-based revolution in this country where 
arms were involved and it was a point where the government was in some way taken control of by force. Do you know where it's supposed to come from? The United States Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. If we had a president that was violating the Constitution to a point at which America was no longer America, even in the least sensible bit of the world, if we had a place where the president or the Congress or the Senate or them combined, and I don't care what letters after their name, were taking actions that were like a Stalin or like a Hitler, it's incumbent upon our military to step in and say, Oh no, we're not going to have that anymore. You call it a coup d'etat if you want to. But I'm telling you, that's part of the role of the military. Because who's left to police the people in charge if they suspend elections? If they start ignoring the Constitution? If they get total totalitarian control? The only people left are the military. Government fears the military. And dictators always have special troops that act as a buffer between them and the main military to counter to carry out the orders the military would refuse and to hopefully defend them against military intervention and act as a buffer. So, is that why these people have been put in place? I don't know. I can't tell you the exact motivation that right now uh, is going on behind the scenes to make this happen. I'm not going to be a sensationalist and tell you, this is the week around us up and send us to FEMA camps. Like I'm sure Alex Jones has done by now, even though I haven't heard it. I'm sure it's been done. Or something very similar. But what I will tell you is that I fear when our government takes an action that puts a system or law in place that can be abused by any president. This is not about Barack Obama. This is about a direct violation of the Constitution of the United States of America. This is about installing something that doesn't belong in a republic form of government like we're supposed to have. This is unconstitutional. And I hope the attorney generals out there that are suing the federal government about health care mandates will take a look at this and consider suing over this as well. I hope somebody will take this up. Because to me, this can't possibly be a constitutional move. I can't see anything that gives the president the authority to create a private army. Or for that matter, gives the Congress and the Senate the authority to create a private army. Because this was done by your senators. This was done by your congressmen. And this was done by your president. Don't blame one man for this. Let me finish up with something from John Stossel. And this was sent to me uh, by a person we'll call Christopher. And I'm just going to read the report, and then I'll give you a link to the rest of the article. But this is about, I, you've heard me talk on the show quite a bit about people that are looking for a job, and I say, go be an unpaid intern. Go work for free. Now, I'm usually not talking about general internship unless I'm talking about young people. Generally, what I talk about when I say this is, the guy says, hey, look, man, I've been laid off for like six months, and I cannot find a job. And my job is in this particular field, and there's several employers in the area, but every time there's a job, there's 50 people trying to get it, and I can't get my foot in the door. And I say, hey, go approach the employer and say, look, I'd like to come work for you for two weeks to a month for free, so you can get a look at what I can do with the hope of then you offering me a job. I don't know if that would fall under this. It seems like it would. Um, but this is really seems to be more targeted at the classic internship, the six-month internship that a college student gets to go work with someone like John Stossel. So let me read this to you, and you can see how the government helping us generally doesn't help. The New York Times reports that the feds are now going after companies that illegally offer unpaid internships. The Labor Department says it's cracking down on firms that fail, fail to pay interns properly. Here's a quote. If you are a for-profit employer or if you want to pursue an internship with a for-profit employer, there aren't going to be many circumstances where you can have an internship and not be paid and still be in compliance with the law. Most of my employers in the past, nearly all of the people who work, most of my employees in the past, nearly all the people that work for me now were uh, started as interns. Some were unpaid. As I wrote in my book, Give Me a Break. Again, this is from John Stossel. When I asked WCBS to hire me a researcher, my bosses looked at me as like I'd asked for the moon. Since they wouldn't pay, I started calling colleges to ask if they had students who wanted internships. Many did. From then on, I got much of my best help from unpaid college students. 
Uh, many years later, many later, oh, many, sorry folks, I'm out, out for a week, my timing's off. Many later moved on to paying jobs at the networks, and many became network television producers. At first I felt guilty asking my students to work for no pay, but I stopped feeling bad about it after most told me they'd learned more in our newsroom than they'd learned on their campuses. Shocking, isn't it? The schools charged them money while I taught them for free. Seems like win-win to me, but the intern guidelines the Labor Department released this January say I would be only able to offer unpaid internships if I derive no immediate advantage from the intern's work. And here's the statute. The six federal legal criteria that must be satisfied for internships to be unpaid. Among those criteria are that the internship should be similar to the training in a vocational school or academic institution that the intern does not displace regular paid workers, and that the employer derives no immediate advantage from the intern's activities. In other words, it's largely a benevolent contribution to the, in, to the intern. So in other words, I'm, I'm breaking off the article here for a second. I'm supposed to bring in an intern and train them and have them work in my environment and be part of my environment, but only in a way that doesn't actually benefit me immediately. So if I bring an intern in and I teach them how to do research for my show, and I spend a couple of days with them and I get them going and they come in every day for a couple of hours and do research and you know put it together in format so that I can use it for my show, I'm now breaking the law. And they're breaking the law, I guess. But they're going to come after me, not them. Because they're working for free. And I'm deriving an immediate in, uh, uh, advantage. So let me continue on with John's article. But I've gotten all kinds of immediate advantage from my interns. Will the feds lock me up? At Fox, interns have have to get college credit to meet legal requirements. Will the new Department of Labor crackdown mean we will have to pay or give them up? I hope not. I would lose valuable help for my reports, and the interns would lose an opportunity to learn. The New York Times cites several cases of interns complaining about their bosses. One Ivy League student said she spent an unpaid three-month internship at a magazine packaging and shipping 20 or 40 apparel samples a day back to fashion houses that provided them for photo shoots. So why didn't she quit? And that's my sentiments and John's, John's article continuing. So why didn't she quit? Does the Times mention any of the countless intern success stories? No. Once again, government bureaucrats make life worse, and the New York Times doesn't get it. It says read more. So I'll give you a link to that article uh, so you can read the rest of it. But I want you to think about what the government's doing here. They're stepping in and saying some of these unpaid interns are being abused. All right, let me... Put it to you this way. Nobody put a gun to that lady's head and made her stay there and send those packaging samples back and forth. I guess what she's complaining about is she did all this work, got no pay for it, and she really didn't learn anything about it. Well, let me give you a little bit of advice if you are an intern, even a low-paid intern. You're there primarily to earn your, your payment is in education. It is your responsibility to go to your employer and say, I think I can do more for you. Where else can I work? What else can I do? And if they say, this is all I can give you right now, then it's your intelligence being used to say, you know what? Okay, great. I've gotten everything I can out of this internship. I appreciate it. If you'd like me to come back as an intern for you in the future and do something else, I would love to, but I'm not going to stay here just to pack boxes. You can bring in anybody to do that. Right, so the intern, we're talking about college-age students here. We're not talking about four-year-olds. Right? This is Ivy League education. So this person is going to Harvard or Yale or something like that, and you're too stupid to realize that you're being used? I, I, I find that hard to believe. I find that to be nonsensical. I question how real that reference even really is. But here you go. This is another example of the government taking something away. I also wanted to, uh, to tell you about where this might lead. In England. They have internships. And if I hire you as an intern, you can work for me. I think it's a year. It might even be two. And I don't have to pay you anything. It's free for me, the employer. It's free for the student because they get money. It's free. It's not free. Taxpayers pay for it. The government will pay your employee minimum wage for a year. It might even be two years in England to act as basically an intern. So that's something that gets you a start in the workplace. It gets an employer a look at you. You learn some things and you get abused. 
And I've been told by people that have used this program in England, those people get abused. They'll get abused way more than someone that's not being paid. So that may be the next thing you see here. You know what we got to do for these internships and to make work pay and to get people into the workplace and to get young people to start. And look at the unemployment rate if it was really including college graduates. We need a way for these people to get started. So why don't we set up and that will be what happens. And you know what? When you are getting paid, and it doesn't cost me anything for you, and I can use you for anything I want, that leads to abuse of the employee. An unpaid intern, everybody I've ever had work for, for me as an unpaid intern, has had a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunity because I know that if I don't make it worth their time to be there, that they're going to leave because they have no other reason to stay. Nonsense from our government, and what can we do about it? Folks, you know what to do about it by now. Keep living that better life. Defy the odds. Understand that you control your life more than anything else. I'm glad to be back with you. I'm glad that we had a great first show back. I'll be doing a lot of other cool stuff this week. I hope you'll tune in. Remember, uh, if you want to get that MSB for $35 for your first year, the code is 0042. Again, 0042. That runs through tax day. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where you You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.